welcome to the Food Manufacturer Podcast. I'm Bethan Grills and as always I'm joined by my co-host Gwen Riddler. Hello. Hello Gwen. So today's topic is sustainability trends. What's hot right now? What are people in the industry investing in? And what's new? But first it's the return of Good Month, Bad Month, which is just our renamed version of Good Week, Bad Week. So Gwen, what's been happening in the news? Uh, I suppose most poignant for me and unfortunately is the bad news uh is the news that um one of the most well known um at least in terms of public recognition of the brand one of the most well known plant-based players uh, meatless farm has unfortunately um gone into administration mm. uh in the past uh, as of recording in the past week and it's uh, sad to see um that for context, obviously, um, I believe it was a Statistica. They published um, their review of the top um, plant-based or alternative meat um, brands in the UK, and they were up there among the likes of, in terms of brand recognition, with a Quorn and the like. And uh, not quite as prolific, maybe as uh, some of the other ones, but it's definitely one that uh, people all knew. So it came as. Uh, I suppose if you were paying close attention, maybe not as much a surprise. But it, for me, it, it definitely seemed like quite surprising that quite a prolific brand had, you know, um, come under such difficulty as of late. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of closures, not just in the, the plant-based sector, but just across the board, aren't we? Hmm. All, all right, let's 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 turn our attention to the good news. On the complete other side, it's sort of from uh, old faces to fresh faces. Um, you were recently at Ecotrophilia, which is a, the student innovation competition run by the IFST, obviously celebrating uh, new faces within the food and drink industry and new products. Um, I mean, and you were obviously a judge there as well. Could you tell us a bit about your experience there? Well, I would be honoured. Um, it was a great experience. It was the first time um, that I was a dragon and I um, channeled Deborah Meaden as much as I could um, it was really really amazing to see such talent um, stand up and you know the they the detail that these dossiers go into is incredible you know all the way from sort of concepts to you know here's our HACCP plan um, to kind of like how you're going to market it and everything and it was really tough decision on the judges um, and the other dragons. I mean, there were some, um, I was, you know, kind of honoured to be sat with some of the like amazing leaders in the sector. Um, and we really had a tough time deciding. But the, the ultimate winners came out at uh, University of Nottingham and it was um, <laughs> Plant Eat, which is obviously a play on word of planet because uh, ecotrophilia is also about kind of um, not just kind of innovation but also sustainability which is very apt considering the topic of our podcast today um, and it was an insect um, brand and it was the first time I ate insects I ate um, I suppose powdered kind of hmm. mealworms and they were delicious and we had them in tiny little fajitas <laughs> um, <laughs> and it was yeah it was it was fantastic so that really was good news and um, you know all the all the runner up, runner ups were so worthy as well and also so humble too um, you know the winners and the runner runner ups they were just really really lovely spirit there of innovation entrepreneurship um and i can't wait to see what those guys are, are going to do in the future so let's turn our attention to sustainability in full now we've got some great guests coming up to give us their views on the biggest trends and how they're addressing sustainability but i thought it might be fun beforehand to do a bit of a countdown chart a sort of top of the pops if you will for sustainability um so are you up for this gwen Ah, oh, more than up to it. Wonderful. So I thought we could do a food manufacturer top five trends and, and perhaps maybe pick out some companies that are doing some work within that area or just some commentary on it. So I know that we're going to argue profusely over this. We we have kind of figured out a um, out of, I think it was about 14 different things that we we listed we have nailed it down to five because um as gwen said to me before we did this podcast she does tend to waffle hmm. um as do i so we thought rather than doing a two-day podcast <laughs> we'd we'd nail it down to five so 
five being what we think is it's got potential but it's maybe not the the it's not number one it's not top of the it's not top of the pops right now um do you want to take us through it gwen Yeah, so jumping right into it at number five is deposit return schemes uh, and the trouble that there seems to be at the moment of getting them to market. Uh, as a concept, um, it's quite sound. You, um, you incentivize consumers to recycle their products, thus forcing the creation of a circular economy and um, ultimately boost the recycling of you know, plastic bottles and, and potentially glass bottles and the like. There's been very similar schemes all across the world that have been quite successful. I know for a fact of uh, <laughs> during a stay over in uh, the Czech Republic in the past of uh, taking our beer bottles back um, to the supermarket after we were done with them to get our 15 uh, cents back. But obviously, if you've paid attention to the news... Um, the idea is being had some contention in Scotland, um, not least from um, manufacturers who are trying to still see what the true benefit of the scheme is, um, campaigners who um, disagree with the fact that um, glass bottles were not going to be included in the initial scheme, um, which in turn, you know, that's a, that's a huge proportion of packaging on the market that's going to go to waste. So. There's a lot of potential there, and this is something that obviously came up, uh, I believe it was the week before, the week before the, in our last episode, um, specifically <laughs> talking about how um, rather than trying to educate consumers or to, to um, get them to think the right way, you're creating a system where they have to recycle. I don't want to say that they're being tricked into recycling, <laughs> per se, <laughs> But um, I'm sure that there's a certain element where people are thinking, well, I need need to get my money back for this, so I I should recycle this now. Um, Which, obviously, that wouldn't have been a thought in their mind in the past. So it plays into that sort of idea of uh, creating a system that you have to play with, you have to be involved with, rather than it being an optional system. Yeah, Um, yeah. I love the idea of being tricked. (laughs) Ha ha, you did a good thing. (laughs) Well, it's the best kind of trick at the end (laughs) of the day. It is, yeah, yeah. Okay, and number four, we've got green claims. Um, So I'm I'm going to um, take this from the the website. Um, I love the website because it's it's got massive letters. Check your green claims. Um, It sounds quite quite aggressive, um, but I love it. Um, So uh, basically this is kind of you know your environmental claims and in terms of the green claims they're against the green claims code green green claims must i don't know why i'm having such struggle trying to talk there um be truthful and accurate so kind of living up to your claims that you make um be clear and um unambiguous um so basically the meaning that the consumer is likely to take from the product's messages is kind of matches the credentials of the product um you're not hiding important information um, so that basically cl- uh, consumers can make informed choices. Um, you only make fair and meaningful comparisons. Uh, I think it's going to be a difficult one, that one to do. Um, any products compared should meet the same needs or be intended for the same purpose. For example, um, you consider the full cycle of the product as well. Um, so claims can be misleading when they reflect the overall impact or when uh, where they focus on one aspect um, of it but not another and they must be um, substantiated so businesses should be able to back up their claims with robust credible and up-to-date evidence so have you been reading anything about green claims recently Gwen? Yes I mean it's a topic that's coming up quite a lot um, the especially greenwashing um, has been a uh, big point of contention because you can make all of these sort of claims of how green and sustainable your product is but i think the last point there um substantiation um is the key one there to be able to actually prove that what you're doing is accurate and is a fair representation of what you're doing Uh, it's all well and good that you say that we're net zero but can you actually say can you prove that you actually are and um yeah 
giving evidence and substantiating, I think, is the biggest part of that at the moment. Uh, well, the biggest part outside of actually doing it in the first place. So what's number three? So at number three, we are looking at the circular economy. So there's been a lot of build-up recently trying to, well, trying to create a circular economy to start with. Um, you know, we've, we've already discussed the idea of using deposit return schemes that plays into the idea of a, of a circular economy, trying to make sure that every part, you know, one, tr we're tracking every um, part of the supply chain to make sure that it's sustainable, but two, making sure that anything that comes out can also go back into it. Yeah, again. so it's a closed loop system. Yeah, exactly. One of the interesting things that was um, pointed out at our recent Scope 3 uh, roundtable um, uh, by Delicate um, was that um, we need to stop, um, I never heard this term before, downcycling, they said. Um, and we need to turn to upcycling, which mm. is a more familiar term, right? Um, by that, they mean, you know, um, kind of going, well, here's a bottle um, and I'm going to recycle that bottle and turn it into, I don't know, um, like a, um, I don't know, toothpaste container. Mm. And then, then, you know, eventually down the line, it suddenly becomes a toothpick. And then eventually that toothpick ends up in the landfill. Um, so it's not a circular economy. And what they mean is by creating something that actually can go back into the land, so something that's compostable. So what we might start to see is kind of um, more um, materials being used um, that you can um, can use in that way, or maybe even edible packaging. I'm not certain how I feel about that, um, mostly because how are you going to make it food safe? So if it's, mm. um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking... Would you then have to wash wash like cereal box, <laughs> like you know, like your yeah. apples? <laughs> I'm just thinking of people just picking things up on the shelf, and I'm like, I've got to eat that. Yeah, obviously, the idea of edible utensils. <clears throat> sorry, you, edible utensils has been something that's been around for a while. I mean, if we're going to be very technical, they made edible plates back in the Middle Ages. Very hard things, but that that's were you know. They were designed to be plates and the like, but you could eat it at the end if you were really, really that hungry. So it's not a new idea, but like you said, it's the sort of we live in an age where food safety is a big concern. So I have yet to see outer packaging. That that's the I think that's the big one. Whether or not um, they can sort because of, one of the obviously one of the ideas being at the moment is you know you re refillable packaging and the likes of things like that. So how would that play into that sort of side of things as well so yeah it's um it'd be interesting to see some concepts and how they get around that issue um especially when at the end of the day things like plastic whilst frowned upon provide the best food safety mm. so um yeah i think when we see some good examples of that in action i think that's when we can really comment on whether or not it's actually a viable idea in the future mm. so is anyone doing any good work in the the circular economy right now to bring up uh, an event that i went to um, which was held, uh, hosted by the helen MacArthur foundation um they've just launched a uh, circular economy challenge um in partnership with, um, I believe it was the likes of the uh, Waitrose or the John Lewis partnership. Yeah. Um, the idea is that they're incentivizing the creation of uh, products that play into the circular economy, um, with the, the goal being that you design a product. Um, if it sort of gets through the, the process, then it'll get shelf space at the end of the day. So um, not only is it, one, incentivizing the production of these products, but two, and the end result will be a product that's on the shelves. People can see it's not hidden away. It's it's quite loud and proud saying this is a, a product that is considered the circular economy. Um, so um, that's only just launched um, sort of last month as it is now. So we, we haven't seen the results from it, but it's things like that that are actually promoting and pushing manufacturers and, you know, food brands to actually design products that work into the circular economy going forward i think that you know we got there's a lot of promise there so hopefully we'll see more and more of those sort of um, incentives pop up and push people to consider the circular economy in their new product design that sounds really really exciting um i can't wait to see actually what the results of that redesign mm. challenge are all right, so um, at number two, we had we had a bit of a time trying to decide between two and, and, and one. So at number two, we have decided 
carbon labelling. And you spoke to someone, didn't you, about this? Yes, so I spoke to the nice people at Williot, who are, um, they're a software company working within the infant internet of things space. And uh, one of the things that they have developed is a type of um, label whose detect side of things I couldn't tell you right now. <laughs> what I know of it, however, is that unlike, it's, it's cheaper to produce than the likes of RFID, but at the same time provides more information that um, you can use on a um, pack level rather than like a whole palette level. So there's a much, a fuller picture of um, every product within a supply chain. But with that, with that ability to track the product throughout the entire supply chain at a much more granular level, and that's the word I was thinking of, granular, it's much easier to then also track the uh, carbon throughout the entire uh, supply chain. And that's where the idea of carbon labelling comes from, is that you can get a fuller, complete picture of all the emissions um, from A to B, you know, farm to fork. And because that data is so up-to-date and so comprehensive, <clears throat> and what I was shown specifically is that you could literally plot on a map uh, exactly at what points m how much carbon was being used. And you could, uh, theoretically, in real time, actively change your supply chain to better you know, um, manage your carbon emissions. I mean, for example, if you have a, you could literally look on a, 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 the route of a truck, for example, and see that one specific route uses up more carbon because there's more traffic there. So it's stuck in traffic longer. It's pumping out more fumes and whatnot. Well, you could then actively change the route um, at the next time that it goes out to go away that uses less carbon or goes away that's um, a shorter route. Uh, and also see you know how long a, a product's in a certain place. If it's staying in one place much longer than it should be, then you can sort of um, manage that and make sure it moves along so it's there's less food miles, less time for it traveling, and, and yeah, ultimately less emissions throughout the thing. And you know everyone's talking about internet, been talking about Internet of Things and that uh, level of um, traceability for a long time, but I think it's a real step up of that system and that that idea. Um, that's only going to, again, it's, we're seeing all these good ideas that are just only going to get better and better. And I think the only thing that's, and this is what they sort of really said to me, the only thing that's really hampering it, the system's all there, it's ready to go. They just need like a, a spark, a big player to really pick up on that and go, here's what we're doing. You know, we're a Coca-Cola, we're a Nestle, we're doing this carbon labeling thing. And then everyone else sort of follow on and go, well, if they're doing it, then maybe we should as well. That's seriously cool. Um, we're not going to reveal number one just yet. We're going to hold you in suspense and we're going to keep on the topic of kind of technology in a way with this next interview. Um, so I spoke to David Lynch, um, a director at um, DDK. Um, they're doing some seriously cool stuff with regards to factory design and digital twins. Um, so let's hear what he had to say. for joining me today on the podcast uh, we wanted to really pick your brain on some of the most popular ways that food and drink companies are implementing um to become more sustainable um, so can you can you talk to us uh, about sort of the the trends that you're seeing yeah yeah sure Bethan. <clears throat> thanks for having me on i, I think there's a, a sort of a number of things that are common particularly when we're talking about either operations or sort of uh, building of factories around sustainability and they are sort of things like recycling waste management the conservation for example of, of energy and water and, and those are things which uh everybody can do everybody can look at and i think the first step with this is about measuring it that's that's what we've got to do we've got to sit down figure out how we measure it and then set a target so once you sort of know either how much water you're using how much energy you're using setting a target of how to go about reducing it is probably sort of the first key steps into sort of the certain of sustainability journey. And I, and I think, to be honest, um, a lot of uh, food factories have been on this for a long time. So recyclable packaging, uh, managing the sort of uh, uh, the recycle of waste processes and, and, and obviously driven by things like cost. 
there's a sort of a, a synergy around trying to manage things like uh, energy and water. So, you know, being more efficient with your energy is obviously good for your bottom line and, and the right thing to do. I think it's sort of a little bit different when we come to understand embodied carbon, what we do when we actually build a factory, um, because we're trying there to sort of do something slightly different. We're trying to optimise an end of life uh, as opposed to just the sort of uh, uh, the, the, the sort of day to day operation. So it's a decision that's made in design, perhaps is, is probably the way to put it. And some of the sort of figures I've got are quite sort of staggering for sort of the amount of carbon that is, is sort of used. So, so in sort of um, in operations, the, the sort of the ratios generally, not just food, the sort of operational carbon is roughly double the amount in, in embodied carbon and building. So that means that, you know, probably over the life cycle of a standard building, we see 80% of the carbon being down to operational reasons. We see 20% down to embodied carbon, in other words, what you've built. And then we see a sort of, um, I think that in, in food, if you're in, for example, cold chain, that's a very different dynamic. So you see much higher operational carbon and a much and, and, and as, as a proportion, a much lower in body carbon. So, so those sort of set the frames and challenges. So the key for me is, and, and, the, and the place to start, whether you're doing waste reduction or, or, or conserving water or energy, is measure it. That's the, that's the place to start. That's that's the first thing we need to do. And of course, continually setting targets and challenges to improve those 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 performances <clears throat> is the way that we actually become more sustainable. Thank you very much, David. That's a really great um, intro there in, into some of the things that people are doing and, and some good suggestions as well. You mentioned obviously about the design of the factory and that's, you know, what DDK kind of do as, as you know, specialists in construction. And um, let's talk about how design can play a role in sustainability. Well, I think the thing to remember is that design actually fixes the amount of embodied carbon we put into a factory, for example, into a facility. And, and, and design is, is, is certainly from, from, from my perspective, it's about solving problems. It's about solving the problems that a business faces. <clears throat> and, and, and clearly sustainability, all aspects of sustainability are, are, are problems to solve. So they're problems to try and have a go at that design. So, you know, a, a design is, is probably the sort of the place where you choose how far down the sustainability journey you start because you can enable so many things and if you've got the resources you can perhaps implement things at, at the point of of, of of first build so I, I think as i said it's about solving problems i think a couple of things that design sort of addresses really is the building size so so for example you know and this is the, this is the same whether you're talking about uh, operational things that it, it's about how you can make do with less. I think that's one of the sort of principal challenges of, of sustainability in design. How do you make do with less? How do you discover what space you really need or what 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 sort of services you really need and how you how how, how do you make sure that you've got the, the, the least? You then try and sort of do the second thing I think with design is you try and sort of um uh try and sort of see where where you can actually sort of uh I suppose reduce the 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 things. Now that could be lightweight in construction, so sort of using design to to sort of choose the sort of uh, 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 the the least amount of 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 allowances you have in steel. So you might have a lightweight steel structure rather than a sort of a, 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 an over-designed steel structure. And and also I think there's a sort of uh, when you're in construction, in the same way when you're in a factory, you can reduce actually the waste of an operation. The challenges that we can we can we can undertake with our supply chain partners building the factories. How do we reduce waste on site? How do we how do we waste less material? How do we how do we be more efficient in the way that we cast our concrete? Those things, those same things that apply to everyday life that we're looking at how we reduce waste, we can look at it in a factory. We can look at it in in in, in design and 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 in, and in and in construction. And then the other thing which I think. And these things, by the way, add up to sort of 10, 20, 30 percent of sort of the ability to reduce carbon. Uh, the third way of doing it is probably looking at alternative materials, <clears throat> um, which is, you know, there are there are there are there are materials that will have lower a lower sort of carbon content. Trouble with food is it's it's quite difficult in the sense that there's, you know, steel, concrete in, in, in a factory, and, and both of those have got quite high, high and, and quite difficult to fix embodied carbon. 
Um, but there are there are alternative tools. And, and then one of my favourites is an offset approach, which is you know looking at renewables. So looking at something like um, solar or, or, or wind, even a small amount uh, as part of the project contributes generally. So I, I think that those are great things that we can look at through design. And talk us through how it works, David, as well, because I mean, I, I, I know, uh, you know, I've experienced it at, um, at Foodex. I, I actually walked virtually <laughs> through one of these digital twins of a, of a factory. But for those obviously listening, not able to, uh, to see it, can you paint a picture for, uh, for the listeners about what it is you are creating and how you do identify these, uh, these ways of, you know, being a bit more efficient? I'll, I'll give it a go. So, so we use various software packages to create a, a, a virtual environment, which, and it could be uh, Revit, <coughs> BricsCAD, um, and Navis works for this sort of thing. But we, we create a, a, a virtual environment. We call it a digital twin, and, and that digital twin has has a number of advantages. So, once you work in in, in AutoCAD or in, 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 in one of these software packages, you automatically create a sort of totalized bill of quantities of all of the materials you're using. So you've got a running total, if you like, of the, the tons of steel, the tons of concrete, tons of carbon, number of doors, etc. We have a way in which we convert that into tons of carbon. So, <clears throat> for example, a, a ton of concrete has a converting factor that turns it into a, a ton of, uh, of equivalent carbon. So we can we can we can use that in a table, multiplying each conversion factor against the material and come up with a total tons of carbon. So that's our sort of uh, reference point, if you like, is <clears throat> what's the tons of carbon in the building? We then can sit there with a, with, with a thing. And by the way, the digital twin is, is used together with a, uh, what we call a, a construction management system, which is effectively a way of using the, the building information management, the BIM data, and taking that and actually sort of working out when you need to buy things, Etc. And, and, and when they're going to be needed to be sort of ordered and installed. So it's a whole system that works together. We use it principally with our um, supply partners, but it's it's accessible to the client. So the client can actually walk around inside this and see the facility. And because we do this right at the beginning, so right at concept, you can walk through a facility with the VR goggles or even on a screen, and you can see what you've got. Now now. Imagine this inside a space. If you can see, if you can actually sort of go and with purpose, it's important to understand you've got to do this with purpose. You've got to be able to sort of replicate an operation, look at something and say, Have I got enough space to turn? Design of multi use spaces is about understanding, if you like, the choreography of an operation. So you have to understand, you have to know, if you like, the sort of physical dimensions and an ideal prep table for example is eight foot by four foot because that gives you the right number of people around tables so if you have those basic chips of information you can begin to put together a sort of circuit board of ideas for, for how a factory can be best put together and, think. and you can look at flows you can look at how, how how far how easy it is to move materials from a to b to c so what we're able to do is to sort of get a sense of how the operation will will work by standing or virtually standing in it and then we're able to say do we need it so, so we're able to look at sort of how you can reduce reduce sort of physical size we're able to look at sort of whether process a is better than process b if if, if you know if it's a chill process what's the best way of, of chilling the product and they make those things make fundamental differences because process in other words the sort of energy per ton of your product if you can pick a process that has less energy per ton, you're obviously going to have over the life cycle of your facility, over the life cycle of your business, you're going to be using or, or using less carbon equivalent uh, in making your product. So it gives people an interactive tool. And, and, and that interaction is what makes conversations that don't necessarily happen about something that isn't built yet, that you can't quite see, much more real. So that's really the sort of advantage of a digital twin. It's an environment in which you can explore and discover things that you can put right now that you might have got wrong if you'd have built them permanently in the future. Yeah, it was it was seriously it was seriously cool walking virtually around around the environment when I when I did it and put the you know the headset on. I noticed all the um the virtual employees were gathered around the water cooler, so it was very realistic as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
So you talked about measurement there, you know, uh, at, at the start of this conversation. And I wanted to to pick that up, David, because, um, you know, in terms of actually sort of going, um, you know, we can reduce uh, or, you know, your emissions or improve your efficiency by X number. How do you sort of authenticate those those statistics and make sure that that is going to be kind of the goal that you, you meet? How does that work? Basically, it's it's the same approach, whatever you want to measure from a sustainability perspective. But of course, it's it's quite different. There's a number of, of, of ways we do it. And it depends a little bit on which aspect of the sort of uh, uh, which property of, of, of the factory, we have energy or water or, 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 or recycling or whatever. So we would want to effectively put together a, a sort of a process which adds up if you like all of the sort of materials now the, the way that that's that's done for us is that we and by the way you can go and get a certified or validated certified certification of measurements if that's what you need to do so there are organizations out there that will give you a a, a sort of a stamp to say this is the sort of validated number for the carbon in your x or y but you don't need to do that what you do need to do is measure everything so if you can measure that, for example, the total power that you use, if you can measure the total water that you use, if you can measure how much material you've got in your building, you can work out what your tons of, of, of carbon or equivalent carbon is, 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 is for usage. And we use uh, actually the Institute of Structural Engineers is, is our main reference. They publish from time to time for each material and, and you can find something like that, but for each material they publish a sort of tons of equivalent carbon and, and that's more sophisticated than that because uh, they, they they will also publish for example typical waste factors you might have for that material in, in construction which are included in the total amount but which as a as a sort of you know as a, as a goal or an objective we can try and reduce that figure we can try and do better than the, the sort of expected norm there's a figure in for transport there's a figure in for i think but, but but there's obviously the the original if you like sort of base material figure as well so you, you as i say you put that in a program which adds everything up and then you have a you have a list of options. so it depends on whether you want that sort of stamped and certified certainly you can find the information on the internet certainly institutes so for example if you're interested in, in the sort of civil aspect of it, the institute of civil engineers publishes the um, uh, and regularly updates by the way because these things do change as we as we understand more but publishes a sort of list of, of materials and tons of equivalent carbon that, that are in them when we're looking at the kind of, I kind of guess just sort of move 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 on a little bit on this when we're looking at that sort of model we we, we, we appreciate that we need to sort of do some form of of, of measure so so if you can imagine a sort of um a square x by y and on one 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 the the, the y-axis on the on the vertical axis you have the total of something whether that's water tons of water per year or whether that's energy or whether that's tons of of embodied carbon in the build and then on the bottom axis we'll have something which 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 is a sort of a, a, a kind of quantity per so let's say it's 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 kilowatt hours per ton of food produced for example so that's that's along the bottom and what we're trying to do, the, the sort of the, the validating approach which you need to be trying to do is you have three basic steps. The first is sort of reduce. So get rid of the waste. That's free. That's easy. That's cheap. That's people can do that. So how do you reduce waste in everything, whether that's less area for a build, whether that's sort of uh, less energy in the thing. So we reduce the waste that's simple and obvious, turning lights off. That takes out a bar at the bottom, if you like. We then look at the sort of uh, reducing the tons per. So in processing and food processing. So for example, um, there was a massive shift from spray drying towards extrusion. And the reason why that was so popular was it took away the evaporative process. So you didn't add lots of water and make a solution, then dry it out and, 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 and extrude a, a sort of powder drug, compressed powder product. You avoided the whole drying stage. That saved massive energy and money. And that, that was, that's an example of a process change, which changes the energy per ton. That has a massive, massive impact on the sort of, the sort of overall uh, energy profile of the business. So that's the second thing. And then there's substitution. And substitution in a, in a model that's looking at, um, I don't know, buildings, for example, 
we're looking at alternative materials, we're looking at end-of-life strategies, so can we recycle them to get some benefit back, or, or, or can we put in sort of offset strategies, like putting in renewables? And, and that sort of, if you can imagine that little square we started with, it shrinks it down, it makes it a smaller box. Each time you look at it, each time you go to it, you make the box smaller, and each year you should make it smaller and smaller and smaller. And that final thing is your sort of target carbon footprint that you're trying to sort of get to over time. So that's the sort of uh, way we go about it. We try and use validated figures from the public domain. Uh, we use a model which which helps us to, to approach. And we use a kind of standardised approach, whatever we're doing, reduce it, try and look to sort of improve its sort of um, the, the, the per tonne, and then try and look for substitutions. Those are the three things we do. Thank you very much, David, for, for talking us through that. And just as a, a to conclude, um, in terms of the, the future of sustainability, you know, at the start of the conversation, we were talking about kind of um, how you can create more sustainable kind of operations. Um, what do you see as being the, the, the biggest, I suppose, um, trend right now in sustainability, perhaps the, the what people can do that would make the most difference? Wow. So, so, so there's sort of... I think there's, 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 <laughs> easy one there for you, isn't it? <laughs> easy. Well, there's so many bits to it. So, so there's a sort of, will the future bring solutions that we can't see today? Absolutely. And an example of that, for, for me, just a very quick example, is, is is in that sort of, go back to that concrete example I gave earlier, where, where the Portland cement was the biggest part of, of the embodied carbon in concrete. Cement, for example, has to break down calcium carbonate into calcium carbonate into calcium oxide. That's the reaction that releases CO2. So that's 50% of the sort of carbon in, 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 in cement, and that's a lot, of big portion of concrete. They are coming up with technology advances to 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 uh, carbon capture the CO2 coming off that process. That will transform. The amount of carbon that concrete produces that will transform it and I'm, I'm expecting the reason for saying that is I'm expecting building materials and materials to have technology change or technological changes that will make them much more sustainable so that's that's happening in, in the future what can I do today when I'm fixing tomorrow I can enable it so I can look at and, and the bit I get excited about is smart building and one of the reasons why the digital twin is so important is you can you can see this you can feel this if you can imagine <clears throat> that you can put sensors and things into your building, you've got your shell of the building and you put sensors in there so that you can measure um, you can measure the impact of uh, um, the, 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 the sun on the building during the day, how much heat and things. So you can actually begin to use technology to manage that building. So smart building management systems are going to be a thing of the future. Absolutely guaranteed. Um, I, I kind of guess the other things which I would probably look for are you would see more um, su support, service and support coming from companies like DDK, helping you to, to address these sustainability issues in everything that you do. So it isn't just sort of buying design, it's buying design and sustainability is an integrated part of it. So those are sort of key things I think we're going to see, is more sustainability everywhere. Thank you very much, David. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you too much. That was David Lynch, a director of DDK. Okay, so um, some really interesting comments there from from David. And um, I, I love the fact that what he sort of sees in the future is obviously a move towards um, smart factories. I totally agree there. And also kind of um, more kind of technology advances in um, construction materials as well and those being more sustainable. So really interesting points um, and just such a fascinating um, way in which they're approaching sustainability um, I think you've waited long enough so um, I know that you are on the edge of your seat to hear what our number one sustainability trend is um, I think we should insert some sort of drum roll drum roll please yeah drum roll okay so Gwen do you want to do the honours so yes coming in at number one a new entry for this week <laughs> We have the extension of reporting throughout the supply chain. Okay, take us through it. So, <clears throat> sort of building off, we've just gone on with um, carbon labelling. Um, Scope-free emissions have been um, a big focus as of late. 
evidently to do so we need to uh, expand uh, manufacturers we as the manufacturing industry uh, need to expand um, our reporting at the end of the day to to better reflect the entire supply chain we've already seen examples um, just again as of recording this week of uh, the likes of uh, poultry processor Avara extending uh, their carbon footprint reporting for example to include more of their farms to better uh, understand exactly where um, their carbon footprint is being created. And the reason for that is because scope-free emissions, which are kind of emissions that aren't um, directly under your control, mm. are the majority of everyone's emissions. Yes. Um, so by having uh, an ability to, to track and measure those and reduce those, we're, we're going to make a substantial di- uh, difference there. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I think we've also discussed this similar concept here as well. You, you can cut down on how hard your, your machines work or how many trucks you send out every single day, but it's that scope-free which you know, it's hard to capture. So, um, yeah, at the end, yeah, expanding your base and understanding every single part of the supply chain um, is going to help with that significantly, uh, specifically with Avara we have here that... Um, so they're starting to with thirty uh, percent of their farming chicken farming base, which will be doubled to sixty percent, and by twenty twenty five, which I believe is the deadline for a lot of people at the moment, yeah. they're planning it for their entire um, farming chain. So twenty twenty five is not actually that far away. No, it's less than two years. <laughs> that's mad, isn't it? This that seemed way into the future. Like, what's happened? What I blame COVID. Well, yes, we have had two years that have just been a perpetual black hole that sucked up everything else. Yeah. So it's, yeah, three years, and then it's just suddenly caught up with us. So we're all a lot younger, basically, than, than yeah. what our you know birth certificates say. So there you go. That's a good takeaway. And there's our number one. Um, before we end the podcast, we're going to hear from another guest. Um, you lucky things. We've got Anna Pierce. Um, from Tate and Lyle and she's going to talk through uh, basically what she sees as some of the sustainability trends and she is the director of sustainability so um, she's 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 got a good eye on these things keep a, uh, an ear out for our, uh, our Willy Wonka references <laughs> Joined by Tate and Lars, Director of Sustainability, Anna Pierce. Anna, welcome to the Food Manufacturer Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. You're most welcome. I think the most important question I have to ask you today is what's the weather like in New Jersey right now? Because in the UK, it's sweltering and I've positioned a fan in my flat and it's it's doing nothing. It's basically just blowing hot air around. <laughs> It is, it's nice and sunny and um, the smoke from last week's Canadian wildfires has cleared so we can see the sun and the blue sky again. Um, we're just edging into the beginning of summer. That's, that's, that's great. I mean, not so much about the, the smoke and that, and that really does give me a, a segue into why I'm bringing the weather up. And it's not because I'm British or I don't have anything to talk about. It's because this <laughs> is characteristically not UK weather. Uh, as pleasant as 27 degrees on a Friday afternoon is, we're seeing a number of impacts of climate change all over the world. As you said, you mentioned the smoke uh, and some of them, you know, as the smoke uh, are not so enjoyable, right? Um, it's also a testament of the damage that we're doing um, and it's now rather visible um, which is kind of making it a bit real for people but the good news is is that we're seeing strides being made by the industry and I wanted to pick your brain Anna on some of the biggest trends really in sustainability to date so what's what's trending right now in terms of sustainability you know are we seeing electric fleets what you know uh, I don't know solar panels what's happening the trend that everybody's talking about in the food and beverage space as Tate and Lyle is a food and beverage ingredient solutions provider is climate change. Um, I think the opportunity that we saw during COVID, right, 
you could see blue sky again, the smog cleared, and everyone had a little bit of time to focus and think about the health of their planet, the health of themselves and what they're eating and being more mindful about being a consumer. Um, and really, as we all kind of came back from COVID, that increased focus on climate change and working together to really make an impact um, became more tangible. And there was certainly an increased level of urgency because of changes in the greenhouse gas protocol in terms of how we calculate our emissions from agriculture. Um, agriculture was kind of seen as one of the last great hopes to combat climate change because of the ability of the soil in healthy conditions to sequester carbon. Um, so there's been a lot of focus on how do we work together and how do we get there um, with a level of urgency that I, I think sometimes is encouraging and gets everyone on board and thinking this really is a climate emergency. Um, and then other times it's, we get so far ahead of calculating the metrics and setting the next target that we have to stop and think about what are we doing to actually affect change and make tangible, meaningful reductions in our footprints, not just plan for a net zero 2050. It's actually really interesting that you you raised that. We ran a uh, scope three emissions roundtable quite recently, and what was sort of one of the key takeaways was obviously getting harmonisation across those data points. Uh, you know, what are we measuring? But also, it was whatever's happening, whatever data we are using, we just got to do something, even if it's right. the fact that we're measuring three now and six and you know whatever it is we're measuring against at least we know we're making some sort of difference which was a really interesting point and it's interesting to hear you say that because it's you know all, all I have heard is heard is we need harmonization on those metrics but actually you know um I think they, they summarized it as action is action so it's a really interesting right. point and um, also totally the during COVID, I, the birds took over. I remember hanging out my washing and the birds were just running underneath it. And I was like, get away. I thought they were going to like come out in, in my T-shirt and shorts at one point and sort of dressed up as humans. But, it, you know, it was interesting to see um, that sort of um, unintended consequence, really, in terms of sustainability um, coming out because we, we were going out as humans uh, as a consequence, you know, not making such a, uh, an impact. Um, of those trends that you, you mentioned, um, and on that note of impact, what do you see as having the biggest effect? I mean, I think part of it is we're all slowly starting to realise that the data and the ideas that we held so closely as ours and kind of safeguarded have kind of been stripped away because when you start to think about this collective move forward, we have to share data with our suppliers, our suppliers have to share data with us, we share data with our customers, who share it with consumers. Everybody wants that increased transparency. So I think that that's been a real shift. Um, I think really, you know, we've seen advances and changes in subsidies around regenerative and sustainable agriculture. Um, we've certainly seen it with USDA grants in the states. And, and I think that's really important that we see governments partnering with industry to make a difference. So it, it can't just be industry that carries the weight of massive global change, but it also can't just be governments either. Okay. And, you know, in terms of those, those trends that we've been talking about, you know, what's, what's, you know the the drivers i know obviously the drivers are, you look out the window you, you, you know people can't see it, but i am profusely sweating at the moment <laughs> and, but you know and i imagine that's a driver yeah because you know we want to protect the planet but but what else is those particular trends that we're seeing in terms of how people are tackling sustainability why are they going to those solutions i i think in i think in agriculture because it is seen as this kind of the last great hope probably like we saw a decade plus ago when everyone was focused on forests, right? Because the Amazon and the rainforest were all the last great hope. And now there's this next great hope in agriculture. So I think there's a huge shift there. Um, and frankly, people want to understand where their food is coming from. I think, you know, you also look at 
infrastructure. So some of these things like agriculture, we can partner with farmers and suppliers and everyone along the value chain and really make a tangible difference. I think other areas of our global greenhouse gas footprint, we don't necessarily have the solution for. So um, there isn't necessarily a great alternative to natural gas, right? Green hydrogen isn't widely available. The grid isn't completely electrified that can power, you know, a, a very heavy manufacturing facility. Um, so I think there's there's those aspects of being able to focus on what you can change and influence and support. Well, in some cases, we wait for technology to catch up. Um, and we wait for innovation to help also defray the cost of some of those early adoption costs that we saw. You know, you see that in solar panels. Years ago, the cost of solar panels wasn't really something that gave a great return on investment. And everyone thought, oh, yeah, this is really good to do, but it's really expensive. Now that conversation is completely different. Um, so I think it's just waiting for that evolution, but you can't just sit still while we wait for that evolution. You have to pick something and just go big and try to make an impact where you can. Really, really interesting points there, Anna. I want to talk about you and, and your role as well and, and, you know, what it entails as director of sustainability. Um, and and second to that, in what ways you and your team have been addressing this, uh, Tate and Lyle? You know, I think for me, I'm I'm passionate about sustainability and leaving a better planet. Um, I it's something I've always been passionate about. So it is a true connection back to my personal purpose of why am I working? What am I working towards? Um, I'm certainly not saving the world on my own, but nice to have a small piece of doing something good. Um, and for me, joining Tate and Lyle as a purpose-driven organization, that was a natural fit, right? So to have a personal North Star and have a company that has a North Star and those things are aligned, that's where you have a supportive environment to make real change happen. Um, I think for us, you know, we, my team and I manage everything from strategy to program development to implementation, um, but it's not kind of an a small army that's doing that that fits very neatly into a sustainability function we've really worked to infuse sustainability into the business so it's not just that core team there's the engineering team that's focused on sustainable innovation and focused on sustainable production and design and the procurement team thinking about the ingredients that we're sourcing and what the environmental and human rights risks are of those ingredients and then using that information to prioritize what we focus on because you can't focus on everything so you have to focus on what's most impactful um for us we've launched sustainable agriculture programs related to corn and stevia we procure them in the highest volumes corn significantly so um so when you talk about the opportunity for impact that's it um, so I think that data-driven approach that it's not just this, I really want to work on this project in this country with this supplier because they're so nice, um, or maybe I just want to go on a vacation in France. It, it's different when you're looking at it from a data approach and say, this is what we have to do. If we want to hit a science-based target, if we want to really get to net zero and we're not buying a huge amount of offsets, you you have to focus on the things that are actually material to your business. Um, I think most recently, the, the latest innovation that we've had in kind of our structure has been finance allocating a person that supports sustainability. Rather that's production, planning out a five-year financial plan and CapEx investments, whether that's thinking about the new disclosures that are being proposed or you know, we're expecting to see um, and be a part of those disclosures. It's important that you have functional experts that are responsible for sustainability so that everybody owns it and employees in the company can see how their function rolls up into that greater societal need and sustainability is certainly one of those things as a pillar of our purpose at Tate Mile. So 
why am I doing what I'm doing and why does it matter um, are important questions that, frankly, I think everybody should be asking. When it comes to sustainability, we see quite a, a big focus from consumers on plastic and packaging. Um, yes. Arguably, that's not always the the best approach. Sometimes it's because, you know, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's like it's it's because it's visible. It's something you can see as a consumer. It's like, yeah, I'm making a, a positive change here. But in terms of where we might um, want to focus, um, you know, you mentioned about sourcing there and the impact that can have. How do we then translate that message to consumers to go actually this is what we're doing and this is making a far bigger impact so that they can they can understand it and see kind of um, see that, you know, where where it's actually sometimes not right in front of their faces. Right, right. You know, I think for us, we're a B2B company. So a, a lot of the work that we're doing is partnering with our customers that are the CPGs that then are selling to the consumers. I think the biggest part there is just sharing information and data so they understand what is the footprint of this soda that's in my hand um, or this cupcake that I'm eating. Like, what is that? What does that look like? I think consumers want to understand where their food's coming from. Um, and of course, the things that are in hand are in hand. And then you see, you know, plastic bottles and in, in the beaches and floating in the ocean. And there's this emotional response to what we've created and generations before us have created, which isn't a bad thing because I actually think that drives change. Um, I think it really comes down to transparency. I think, you know, a lot of the CPGs do a really fantastic job of saying, this is our target. If they are in a plastics heavy industry, they're being really transparent about this is what we're trying to do about it. And at the same time, I think, you know, from following along, the innovation in the plastics and the packaging space has really picked up in recent years. Um, and I think that's going to be one of those examples of the desire and the urgency to find a solution brings about the pressure, but also brings about this really great creativity to not see it as a risk, but see it as an opportunity to do something very different. Um, that's more impactful and and you know leaves less of a footprint. So I, I'm I'm personally excited to see what they come out with. You, you know, you mentioned there also you are a B two B. So in terms of who you're communicating, it's with businesses rather than consumers. But I, you know, it all ends up being to consumers in the in the end, I suppose. Um, yeah. Are you? I mean, you also mentioned about kind of um, explaining the importance within the wider. Um, uh, I suppose across the wider uh, um, employees in Tate and Lyle about sustainability and the importance of that. So two questions, really. First of all, how, you know, are you finding that um, it's it's quite easy to sort of give that important message and to say, you know, we need really need to put investment in this and, and that um, within um, the company? And, and secondary to that, do you find that the more you invest in sustainability, the more interest that you have in partnerships? I think the more that you invest in sustainability, it gives you a seat at the table with your customers to talk about partnerships. Um, nothing comes for free. So if you don't plan for it, if you don't budget for it to drive your own reductions, you don't have the ability to talk to customers or talk to suppliers about partnerships because you kind of don't have a lot to offer except an opinion and a, and a place in their supply chain. So I do think you have to invest and, and be serious about it to be taken seriously as a partner. Um, I think the more that we invest and the more that we spread that sustainability responsibility across the functions in the company, the level of interest increases because suddenly something that was oh, they report on those greenhouse gas emissions. It's really complicated at climate change. It might be weird weather. Thankfully, we're through those discussions. But it's a lot and it's really complicated. So to be able to say, oh, you know what? My team is going to buy Rainforest Alliance cocoa instead of conventional cocoa. And I feel really good about that. You know, there's a personal level of pride in, in being able to make those decisions. And 
you know, it might be organizing a volunteering event, but there's a lot of different ways to move the needle. And at the end of the day, they all add up. In terms of you, you mentioned innovations as well and about technology catching up. But are there any innovations within the industry which you've been particularly impressed with regarding kind of um, sustainability? I'm excited to see where we're going in the energy space at large. Um, We exited out of coal in our operations in 2021. We spend a lot of time thinking about how we power really large manufacturing facilities. And part of it is the existing technology we have. And part of it is all of these kind of solutions that are coming coming up and, and we talk about the grid and we talk about the infrastructure and it's such a huge problem to solve and impacts everyone on the planet. I have to think that we're going to continue to see innovation in that space, maybe in ways that we didn't necessarily think possible or practical. Um, I think part of it is having an open mind to what we see coming across the industry. In terms of real innovation, some of it's just listening. Frankly, you know, when you think about regenerative agriculture, it's it's in part as much of providing data to a farmer and helping them make more informed decisions and really providing expertise. Um, we're not an expert, so we're not our core competency as a company isn't in agriculture. So we partner with those that that is their core competency and they are really um, well versed in giving good advice to farmers. And I, I don't necessarily think it's as an innovation as much of it is just recognizing that inherently they've been stewards of the environment for decades and helping them continue on their journey or maybe doing it a little faster or trying something a little bit different, a new type of seed, a new type of fertilizer. Um, it's those little innovations that are hugely impactful for them at a personal level and at a family business level. Um, that then there's trade-offs up the supply chain, you know, that we see in terms of more sustainably sourced ingredients and um, reductions in emissions and improved water quality in the area. So I think sometimes innovation is really huge. You know, we're all waiting for that next big light bulb moment. And I think at a company level, changing a fertilizer or changing a seed or a practice may seem really small but when you're doing that times thousands of farmers it really rolls up to being something incredibly meaningful yeah absolutely it's a lot of seeds um (laughs) (laughs) it is so in terms of you know staying on that topic of innovation in the future how do you sort of see it evolving is there anything exciting coming down the tracks you know, I, as I look at it, I wish that there was kind of the golden ticket um, that we could all just say, this is the next big thing that's going to make this huge impact. Um, I don't necessarily think that we're going to have that Willy Wonka moment in the next um, next year or so. I think <laughs> that is the best <laughs> phrase, Willy Wonka moment. I'm going to use that. Hashtag <laughs> Willy Wonka moment. <laughs> oh, goodness. I put I put um, you off there. I'm sorry. Carry carry on. No, I, I I mean I think part of it is just being open minded, and the best ideas don't always come from the the most known experts in that space. So it's embracing working with startups. It's having the engineering team try something that they think might work. Um, it's kind of thinking outside of the box in terms of what innovation looks like. And sometimes it's a really linear path and it's exactly what we think it's going to be. And, you know, we've had some some successes there. Um, And then other times I think it's just seeing what's coming. um, That's that new technology or that new thought process that we can we can really gravitate towards and help inform us in what we're doing. So staying on the the Willy Wonka uh, theme, there is no way of knowing which earthly way we're going. Uh, I think that's a that's quite an apt quote to uh, conclude this interview. Um, Fantastic. 
And I totally knew that off the top of my head. Didn't have to type that into the Google at all. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I know my role doll. Um, Anna, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for talking to us about sustainability trends. And it's been really interesting to hear, um, you know, about how your team's operating and, and what you sort of think is going to happen into the future as, as well as what Tate and Lyle is doing. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been incredibly fun and um, I'm delighted to have been here. Thanks again. That was Anna Pierce, Director of Sustainability at Tate and Lyle. So, that concludes the the podcast very nicely we obviously had our lovely trends um our very scientific based um no but based on what we've been hearing um, yeah it's not it, i haven't exactly pulled them out of thin air now, these are all genuine um concerns throughout the food and drink industry um just because I don't have a PhD in a sustainability trends doesn't mean I can't, I can't uh, pick up a trend when I see it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so it's been been great. Um, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this episode and um, keep your ears to the ground for another episode coming soon. But that's all from us for now. Thank you very much. We'll speak to you soon.